Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 this morning to start our time. He is risen. Thank you. I'll do it again. He is risen. Oh, brothers, sisters, there's such joy in knowing we serve a risen Savior. Let me begin our time this morning in 2003. 2003, almost 19 years ago to this very day, Aaron Ralston went on a hike alone through the remote and exceedingly narrow canyons in southeastern Utah. While he was making a descent into Blue John Canyon, he dislodged a boulder which pinned his arm to the side of the canyon wall. Now, he was stuck immediately. There's no way of escape. He was helpless in this canyon. He tried everything he could to break the 800-pound boulder while surviving on 12 ounces of water and two burritos, not Taco Bell, for five days. Then, while suffering from dehydration and delirium, Aaron Ralston had a life-saving thought. If he sacrificed his arm, he could escape and live. With nothing less to lose and realizing the value of life, he broke his own bone, cut his own flesh, and Aaron Ralston escaped Blue John Canyon and is alive today. Aaron's escape should make us ask this question. Where did Aaron come up with the life-saving thought of amputation of his own arm while under such incredible stress. Friends, he wasn't meditating on Scripture, thinking on Jesus' words from Matthew 16, verse 25, where Jesus says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Nor was Aaron reflecting on Jesus' words in Matthew 18, verse 8, where you are, where Jesus says in verse 8 of Matthew 18, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Aaron's mind was not thinking about the eternal fires of hell, about scripture, about Jesus, Jesus' resurrection, life after death, the eternal destiny of his own soul, Aaron was hallucinating when he saw a vision of himself playing with a child minus his right arm. This was the inspiration of Aaron's last-minute, life-saving thought of amputation of his arm. It came from a hallucination. His deathbed moment of clarity came in a vision which allowed him to save his physical life. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 23, verse 42. Brothers and sisters, the repentant thief on the cross was under far greater duress and stress than Aaron Ralston. The 800-pound boulder on this criminal's back was the Roman Empire from which there would be no escape and no rescue of his physical life at all. Nor was the thief on the cross hallucinating or receiving a vision when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was being nailed on a cross right next to him. And yet, somewhere between Luke 23, verses 39 and 40, in the white spaces of your Bible, this criminal receives the greatest, most profound deathbed thought and last-minute clarity that any human being has ever had. You see the greatest fruit of his last-minute thought in the last nine words recorded from this man's life in Luke 23, 42, where the thief on the cross looks at Jesus and in his own agony, he says to Christ in verse 42, 
Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Brothers and sisters, how much more valuable is this deathbed moment of clarity given to the thief on the cross who did not seek to save his physical life like Aaron Ralston, but sought refuge for his soul from the eternal flames of hell? How much more valuable is this last-minute spiritual life-saving thought that leans not on personal fitness, willingness, or ability to save one's physical life, but leans fully and exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ to provide grace and mercy and love. The thoughts and words of the repentant thief on the cross prove in the text invaluable to every single one of us. They are, however, eclipsed in power, glory, and grace by the response of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 43, where Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. This morning I want to focus our time on this conversation between the repentant thief and our Lord Jesus Christ from Luke 23, verses 42 and 43. And I want us to consider this last minute deathbed spiritual conversion of a dying criminal and the importance of his last nine words, which highlight Jesus' redemption of sinners and resurrection from the dead. We will be blessed if we can come to understand just what happened there in the white spaces between verses 39 and 40 that caused this criminal to think high, high thoughts of Jesus Christ. We need to know where did this humble, yet confident nine-word plea come from? On his way to spiritual and physical death, what happened to this man? What did he come to know? What did he come to understand? Why did his command of Jesus receive Jesus' favor and not Jesus' silence? How can it be that Jesus confirms this criminal's eternal security based on these last nine words? These questions require answers, and we will be blessed to find the answers. The answers, brothers and sisters, are right in the text. In our text today, the thief on the cross confesses two essential facts required for eternal life. You'll find these most helpful for you. It is here in the text that the criminal crucified beside Christ believes two eternal truths that confirm his eternal security. What two eternal truths must we believe that we may receive eternal life? The thief on the cross believed, number one, for your notes today, Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Second, he believed Jesus is the sovereign King. Let this serve as our outline for this morning. The thief on the cross believed, number one, the first of two eternal truths, Jesus is the Savior for sinners. And number two, Jesus is the sovereign king. We'll be looking at just these two verses, but the whole context will be necessary. What can we learn from the deathbed conversion of this thief on a cross? Deathbed, last-minute salvation, is, if anything else, scandalous. Some Christians and most all non-Christians alike hate this particular reality of Christianity. That God, in his own power, wisdom, grace, and strength, would even care to save a sinner in the moments right before the wicked sinner 
dies. Now, Baptists don't like it because the guy wasn't baptized. Legalists don't like it because he wasn't wearing the right clothing, wasn't eating the right food, and certainly wasn't reading from the right Bible. Atheists despise the idea of the man who never proved himself in works to be a good person. They would say he did no societal good. He was not a good person. How can he be saved? He didn't earn it. Well, brothers and sisters, that's just the point. None of us are good. In fact, if you're good, will you raise your hand? Not only is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ scandalous, so too the resulting salvation and grace of God is scandalous as well. The scandalous grace of deathbed conversion, it makes us ask a few questions. What truths, what facts, what content humbled the heart of this criminal? What thoughts about Jesus are required for entrance into eternal life? What made this man, with his last nine words, repent and believe? Those thoughts are here in the text as we consider point number one in your notes. The first of two eternal truths required for eternal life, which were believed by the thief on the cross in his dying moments. The first of these two is number one in your notes. Jesus is the Savior for sinners. Number one in your notes, Jesus is the Savior for sinners. At face value, belief that Jesus is the Savior for sinners is an absurd thought. Jesus is the Savior for sinners? Not a chance, right? Not a chance. Look at what's happening. Jesus has been bloodied and beaten by the Roman soldiers and is presently nailed to a cross and will physically die within moments. How can Jesus be anyone's savior if he can't save himself? This is exactly the reasoning of the overwhelming majority of the men and women who are standing by on the cross watching, let alone of the eight plus billion people on the face of the earth today. You see this in Luke 23, verse 33. They're not impressed with Jesus at all. The people aren't, nor are the Jewish ruling elites, nor are the Roman soldiers. Luke records in Luke 23, verse 33, that when they had came to the place called the skull, that is Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves, Verse 35, and the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Matthew 27 verse 44 clarifies for us that both criminals were insulting Jesus with the same words all the way up to this very moment. No one saw Jesus as a savior, though all of them, all of these Jews around this cross anticipated that God 
would send a Messiah to them. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. These Jews knew their Old Testament promises. Genesis 3.15 is where God promised to send a Savior, the seed of a woman, who would strike Satan's head, though Satan would strike his heel. Job 19, 25, and 26, Job says, as we sang earlier, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Job believed in a Redeemer, and he believed in bodily resurrection. God made eternal promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and 17. God made greater promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, saying, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, certainly Solomon did build a house for Jesus, for, for, for the Lord's name. This forever king, however, was not Solomon. Because Solomon died, and so the Jews kept waiting for their Messiah and for their eternal king, their forever king, to show up. Ezekiel 34, verse 23, the Lord through the prophet declares, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be the prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken the Old Testament is vibrant with prophecy that God's Messiah would come in the flesh to both redeem and rule over his people. And so, with many scriptures, that points to Christ over and over again. And you should wonder about these. How did the Jews miss all of these scriptures? How did they miss Christ? Very simply, brothers and sisters, I would tell you this. They were looking for a bold king. Not a humble, suffering servant, king, a savior for sinners. You're in Psalm 22, a psalm of David, which is thoroughly prophetic of Jesus' crucifixion. Derek Kidner is a commentator, and he says no Christian can read this without being vividly confronted with the crucifixion. Without question, the Jews knew Psalm 22. They know it today, but they've never wanted to consider its fulfillment was in the suffering savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We see the suffering of God's Savior from the opening verse where David says in Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which Jesus quotes in the moments before he chose to die as recorded in Matthew 27, verse 46. David's psalm continues saying prophetically in Psalm 22, verses 14 through 18. Again, this is 1,000 years before the life of Christ. David wrote this. He says in verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This 1,000-year-old prophecy was fulfilled at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as described here, even as we read earlier in Luke 23, verse 34. And it's got to make you ask the question, why can't Israel see their need of a suffering Savior? 
who can cleanse them from their sins. Turning your Bibles to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 4. They were warned by God through Moses. Blessing will come for your obedience. And that's just what you parents do with your kids, right? Blessing for obedience. Cursing, God told Moses to tell Israel. Cursing would come for their disobedience. And that, hopefully, if you're parenting accurately, is what you offer for your children too. If they disobey, you must follow through with discipline, with punishment. And so here is God giving the example through Moses to Israel. And all of us who understand this, we understand our own wicked sinfulness and our vast amounts of disobedience in our own personal selves. We look at Israel and we think, what then must be done for these people to be forgiven? Is forgiveness an option for them? And the answer is, we're dealing with a holy God. His character is forgiveness. Yes, there is forgiveness. Repent and forgive. Repentance for forgiveness, this is the only way to fix the brokenness of rebellion and disobedience. God is a forgiving God. According to his nature, according to his essence, he cannot deny himself. He is a forgiving God. That's his character. In Leviticus, he makes, his, he makes this abundantly clear, his character to Israel through Moses, saying in Leviticus 26, verse 40. This is a paraphrase rendition I'm going to give you. 26, verse 40 of Leviticus. God says to them, if you confess your iniquity and your unfaithfulness that you have committed against me, if you confess your hostility toward me and humble yourselves and make amends for all of your sinning, then I will remember my covenant. I will not reject you, for I am the Lord your God. Always the Lord God is at a plan to rescue and redeem Israel and all repentant sinners. Always, always God has had this plan. And the plan has always been, brothers and sisters, it's always been, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior for sinners. Luke 24, verse 47, which we'll hopefully read at the end of our time. Luke 24, 47 says that repentance, Jesus says repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name across Judea and across the whole course of this world, which is exactly what's happened for the last 2,000 years. You're in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Oh, what a treasure here. Isaiah 53, verse 4, where the one Savior plan is spelled out for us explicitly. Isaiah records the words of national Israel at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The redeemed of the nation Israel will look to the sky and they will see the rider coming on the white horse whose name is called Faithful and True and whose name is called the Word of God, whose eyes are a flame of fire and whose robe is dipped in blood. And they will see him and they will cry out at that moment. Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6 and following. They will cry out, surely, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Don't lie to yourself. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall onto him. Look at the confession and realization that they make in verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, 
He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Wow. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is our confession now, as it will be for those repentant Israelites in the years that will come. How great to know that national Israel will be revived as a nation with the same confession that you and I hold today. Jesus Christ is the righteous one, the suffering servant of the Savior of God, whose death on the cross accomplished, get this, substitutionary atonement for our sins, the propitiation of the wrath of God against our sins, the ransom of a people for his own possession, justification for many sinners who believe that Jesus is Savior and King, even justification of one of the two criminals crucified next to him on Calvary's hill. Turn back in your Bible to Luke 18, verse 31. Israel should have known they should have known. They had all the prophecies. They were the stewards and the handlers and the holders of the word of God. And yet time and time again, they proved themselves faithless and unbelieving. It is exactly as Paul says in Romans 2 and in Romans 9, verses 6 and 8. Not all Israel is Israel, brothers and sisters. Children by the flesh are not instantly made children of God. No, Rather, only children who hold the promises and the truths of God are the children of God, God's spiritual offspring. What promises of God and what teachings from God were the hardest to hear but of greatest consequence for Israel? The teaching that salvation is from God alone. The teaching that they could not work for their salvation, that they needed a rescue, they needed a savior. The teaching that God must send a suffering servant for the sins of all those who would believe. The Jews didn't want to hear about their need for a suffering Messiah as evidenced in Jesus' 12 disciples. How many times in three years of his teaching and training ministry of his disciples did Jesus tell them that he came to suffer for his people? Jesus spoke to the disciples in Luke 9.22 saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Again, in, John, or in Luke 9.44, Jesus says, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Verse 45 says, But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Verse 25 of chapter 17, Jesus says, But first, I must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. You're in Luke 18, verse 31. I'm making a case. How many times did he say to them, this is the pattern, this is the plan. It's all over the Old Testament scriptures. And here again to his people in 18, verse 31 of Luke. Luke records, then Jesus took the 12 aside and said to them again, if you will, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. 
For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after these have scourged, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, verse 34. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Oh, man. Where does sight come from? Where does belief come from? Who authors hearing? Who authors vision? Who could possibly make them understand? How will they come to understand? You hear the pattern in the text, don't you? It's over and over. It's in the, it's in the text. Handed over, killed, resurrected the third day. This is the end of life plan for the suffering servant of God that you must know if you are to have eternal life. There is no other means of reconciling God and man. There is no other name given under heaven, given among men, by which men must be saved. The God-man, Jesus Christ, must satisfy the wrath of God which comes against all our sins, our sins, which are imputed onto Jesus Christ on that cross. If I can, with imputation for just a second, it's so important that you recognize that on the cross, our sins are imputed to him. Because if imputation can happen of our sins to him, guess what you need next? You need the imputation to you of his righteousness. And that's what was accomplished on that cross as well. It is the case that we broke God's law, Jesus paid the fine. The disciples can't comprehend a suffering servant and a savior for sinners. They can't. They're not given discernment through the Holy Spirit to comprehend the many glories of the cross. They don't have the mind of Christ. And the events of Jesus' crucifixion for them will be absolutely devastating. You know that. Beginning with his betrayal by Judas Iscariot in Luke 22, verse 47. You can look at Luke 22, verse 70. On the way to verse 70, it's at verse 57 that Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane late on Thursday night. It's in verse 66 that he goes through his first trial with the Sanhedrin, who are the Jewish religious elites, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And it is at verse 70, where you're at, that Luke records the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They all said, verse 70, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Ego me, I am that I am. Yes, I am. At verse 1 of chapter 23, his second trial begins with Pilate as the Jewish elites want his death, the death of the blasphemer, and they've gone and taken him to the Roman authorities. At verse 4, Pilate finds Jesus not guilty. At verse 14, again, Pilate finds Jesus not guilty. The evil cry of Israel's unbelief is seen in verse 21 of chapter 3, and they all cried out. All of them, just like all of us, they all cried out. Crucify, crucify. Verse 22, for a third time, Pilate says to them, I find no guilt in this man. Which brings us to the sadness and the sovereignty of the most ironic day in human history. When, in verse 24, Pilate pronounced sentence that their demands be granted. Verse 25, he delivered Jesus to the will of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, to be crucified. Consider 
the enigma. Consider the conundrum, the mystery. Innocence was executed by the guilty. Perfect love was met with perfect lies. Truth was called blasphemy by the greatest blasphemers. The criminals killed the king while the king killed death. The life giver died giving life to the spiritually dead. God himself hangs on a cross dying and is perfectly in control of every detail. The one ridiculed and mocked for not saving himself was in fact at that very moment saving many. Love, joy, and hope embrace pain, suffering, and wrath in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on that cross, receiving the wrath of God upon him. Look at Luke 23, verse 40. The cross of Jesus Christ is the fulcrum of human history and the height of human irony. It is the enigma, the perfect mystery hidden from the ages until it was revealed by God through the Spirit at Pentecost, 40 days after Jesus was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven. And somehow, somehow, this knowledge that Jesus Christ is the only Savior for sinners in the world comes into the mind of the thief on the cross in his agony and in his suffering at Luke 23, verse 40, just moments after he himself was openly ridiculing and mocking this very same Lord Jesus Christ. Reading the text with me where Luke records one criminal was still mocking Jesus at verse 39, but verse 40. But the other answered, and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How did this happen, brothers and sisters? At this moment, this criminal believes that he, he believes what everyone else cannot and will not believe. This guy gets it. How does knowledge, how does wisdom, eternal knowledge, Eternal wisdom fall on this man in his moment of agony, hallucination, delirium, and suffering. How did his mind get so clear, so focused, so sharp? How did it happen? All the, consider with me what he believes at this point. In his own confession, listen to what he believes. Jesus is God. He is Savior. He is allowing his crucifixion. Jesus cares about the cry of those who humbly confess and repent. Jesus will forgive the sins of the repentant. Jesus will redeem, restore, and raise to spiritual life all the humble, repentant, and those whom he has forgiven. Jesus will listen to me now. Jesus will remember when he enters into heaven the words that I'm saying to him. Jesus will enter heaven. Death cannot hold him. He is the sovereign king of the world who will enter his eternal kingdom resurrected. This man believes all of this. The whole package, everything that you and I believe, this man has tucked into his head in the face of hallucination, delirium, pain, agony. 
And at this point, we've moved past point number one in your notes. Point number one in your notes, the thief on the cross believed that Jesus is the Savior for sinners. Clearly, this man believed that Jesus is the Savior for sinners. And now we've come to point number two in your notes. Jesus is the sovereign king. That's where his thoughts go. That's the other half of his comment here. He knows, number two in your notes, that Jesus is the sovereign king. The second of two eternal truths required for eternal life, believed on by the thief. Number two in your notes, Jesus is the sovereign king. But where do we see the thief on the cross believe that Jesus is the sovereign king? We see it in Luke 23, verse 42b, the second half of his comment. He says, Jesus, remember me, in verse 23, 42a, which is the plea of a repentant sinner to a savior. Jesus, remember me. And then he qualifies this command of Jesus in space and time, saying in 23, 42b, when you come into your kingdom. With this qualification, we learn the thief on the cross knows that Jesus is sovereign. Sovereign over life. Sovereign over death. Sovereign over eternal life. How did this happen? What changed his heart? How does he know resurrection? How does this man know Jesus is a kingdom owner? How on earth did this wicked sinner move from ridicule and repentance? How did he move from from ridicule to repentance, I should say, from helplessness to hopefulness. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 10, verse 17. Luke 10, verse 17. How did this thief on the cross change from being a horrible criminal to a humble Christian, a little Christ? Salvation. That's how. Salvation. Grace. Regeneration. What Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, born again, spiritual rebirth. The Holy Spirit regenerated this man's heart in an instant. That's what happened right there on the cross. That's in the white spaces between 39 and 40. The Holy Spirit removed his heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh meaning a receptive heart to truth. Certainly this man did not save himself. Brothers and sisters, what man can save himself? What man can use his own free will and choose to believe? If our free will is so strong, then use your free will right now to stand up and jump and touch the ceiling. Will it? Will it to happen? Free will that to happen. Free will yourself to take off and go to Hawaii today. Free will yourself. Your free will, your free will is so restricted and so bound. You are confined to a tight little space in life. Very much like Aaron Ralston under that boulder. Very much like the thief pinned to the cross. That's about the size of your free will. You need something bigger than you. Not one of us. Not one of us can save ourselves. No, not one. There's none of us who are good. There's none of us who seek after God. All have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. To believe in Jesus Christ is to receive his sovereign salvation as a free gift of God's grace. This is the scandal of grace. God elected this thief for salvation in eternity past. The criminal's name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And at this precise moment in human history, to the glory and praise of God alone, Jesus placed grace onto this criminal in the person of the Holy Spirit. 
The same way Jesus places his grace onto you and I, saving you and I on his time frame, saving us in his sovereignty, in his power and strength, when we were his enemies, just like this criminal, just like the Apostle Paul. And so how did the criminal change? Salvation is the answer. He was saved. He was born again. To be sure, who pulls the trigger on that salvation? Who decides? Does Jesus decide to save or does the criminal decide to be saved? You're in Luke 10, 17, where we're going to see the answer to that question. We see here in, in this text that Jesus has a three-year earthbound ministry that is not done in private. His ministry is very public as he shared his ministry with over 70 disciples here in Luke 10. Jesus had a message for all of Israel and the whole world, which Luke records in Luke 4.43, where Jesus said to the people of Judea, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And verse 44 says, so he kept on preaching in the synagogue of Judea. Preach the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' message. That was his mission. Then at Luke 10, Jesus sent out 70 men to preach the gospel to the cities on their path to Jerusalem. He was making his way to Jerusalem with his men. Send them out to evangelize. Go to the cities. Tell them about me. Preach the gospel. At Luke 10, 17, the men, the 70, come back and offer the following report, as Luke records in verse 17. The 70 returned, verse 17 of, of chapter 10, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Verse 21, at that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus' sovereignty as King is all over this passage. Look at verse 22 of chapter 10 again, this last verse. How does Jesus say that anyone can have knowledge of his Father? Jesus must will to reveal the Father to anyone. Because knowledge of the Father and the Son has been hidden from rebellious, sinful men and women ever since Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden as enemies of God, not able in their own strength to restore their relationship to God, their children all have experienced the same fate for the last 6,500 years. However, if Jesus wills for you to know him and his Father, you will be saved. Let me say that again so it's very clear to you. If Jesus wills for you to know him and his Father, you will be saved. That, shouldn't give us, that should give us the appreciation for the size and extent of Jesus' sovereignty as king. 
that the criminal on the cross next to him had. Furthermore, let's look back at Luke 10.20, since we're here in the text. Luke 10.20, where Jesus is rejoicing with the 70 disciples at the great spiritual victory over Satan and his demons that they experienced while preaching the kingdom of God. This is an extremely exciting and special moment in Jesus' earthly ministry. The celebration with these guys, Satan was falling like lightning. They were experiencing what you might call spiritual fireworks every single day. And at this moment, Jesus wants to bring the ultimate spiritual firework right into the living room. He says something here in 1020 that few believers in Scripture ever, ever get to hear. The assurance of salvation spoken to a living human being off the lips of Jesus Christ. Assurance of your salvation. The sovereign king of all creation confirms the eternal destiny of these 70 men, speaks it right to them in the text. The savior of the world increases the joy of this moment eternally by saying to them, verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. How incredible are these words? How awesome, how special to know while you yet live that heaven will be your eternal home because of Jesus' choice of you. This has nothing to do with merit. No one can earn their salvation. You could never possibly pay enough. Salvation is not for sale. It is not earned with works. But here in the text, a sovereign king gives 70 men the highest caliber of assurance of the salvation that he chose for them and placed onto them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Turn back in your Bibles to Luke 23, verse 43. Without question, many of these very same men will arrive with Jesus in Jerusalem for Passover in A.D. 33. Many of these men will scatter when the Jewish elites and the Romans strike their shepherd. Jesus addresses Peter himself directly in Luke 22, 34, saying, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. How needful was it? <clears throat> For Peter, how needful was it for Peter and the others that Jesus offered this powerful assurance of their salvation, telling them directly, your names are recorded in heaven. Do you think you'd forget that if you're one of the disciples? Do you think you'd forget that, that Jesus said to you, your name is recorded in heaven? Brothers and sisters, these men needed profound assurance of their salvation. They needed assurance that he, Jesus, is the sovereign king of all creation and that their faith in him would never fail because he, Jesus, is the author and protector of their faith. They have eternal life because he is the king of eternal life, even when he is beaten, mocked, and hanging on a cross, even when they themselves get scared like little children and run away and hide like Adam and Eve in the garden. Their faith in him will never fail because they didn't create their own faith. The sovereign king of heaven gave them their faith in him. You're in Luke 23, verse 43, where the king of the universe is hanging on the cross. In his agony and pain, as his body squirms up and down to take in oxygen into his lungs, it will be Jesus' greatest joy amidst this incredible pain to use every painful breath to respond to the criminal at his side. Though this criminal was mocking him within the last hour, Jesus is going to give the most incredible 13-word deathbed blessing 
and through his own agony with each breath, Jesus will offer the assurance of eternal salvation to this repentant thief hanging on a cross beside him. You see it there in chapter 23, verse 43 of Luke, where Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. The repentant thief believed that Jesus is a savior and that Jesus is a sovereign king. He believed those two eternal truths and now he receives assurance of the salvation that has been given to him as a free gift. Did this man earn his salvation? No one does. The only way this man gets salvation is if it was applied to him by the king of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happens here. Truly is the Greek word amen. It is a solemn expression of certainty, confidence. And when you say amen at the end of your prayers, basically what you're saying is truly, certainly, and with sincerity. Amen is used 76 times in the New Testament. It's very interesting to note this. Every single one of those 76 is by Jesus. When he says amen, truly, sometimes he doubles that up. He is saying, listen up. Listen carefully. What I'm saying to you is worthy of your careful, careful consideration. Let's discuss then the grammar of Jesus' sentence to this man. Jesus directs his speech at one man using the pronoun you, second person singular, you. You, the unbelievably changed and repentant criminal on the cross next to me, you. Truly I say to you, man, truly I say to you, comma, there's a comma after you. The comma is followed by the word today, which is semeron in the Greek. This comma after you makes today the emphatic focus of Jesus' words. In his sovereign control as king, Jesus knows what the events of today will hold. The Jehovah's Witnesses, in their New World Translation, they move the comma, placing the comma after semeron, after today. To make it match their understanding of soteriology and eschatology, salvation and the end of times. The Jehovah's Witnesses would have you believe that Jesus was referring to the day on which he was speaking. I'm speaking to you today. Not the day on which the thief would arrive in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now we know better, don't we? We know better exactly what Jesus was saying. The comma goes before today because the word today, Samaron, is the word that our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, the King, is using to make a thrilling, jaw-dropping, and outrageous exclamation. James Edwards says the emphatic placement of today assures the criminal that the promise of salvation is not merely a future possibility, but an assured and present reality in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 12, verse 4. Luke 12, verse 4. Imagine for a second the joy that would have flooded Aaron Ralston's heart if while agonizing over his arm being pinned to a rock by an 800-pound boulder that anyone walked up to him on any of those five days that he was trapped and said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. He would have been over the moon just thrilled to hear the voice of anyone if it meant that help was going to be coming to him. You wouldn't need to take him to eternal paradise, he'd settle for Pine River Park if it meant he could have his hand still attached to his body and 
and get back to satisfying all of his physical desires on this earth. Here on the cross, the thief knows nothing will save his physical life. Nothing. Nothing will save his physical life. And so he pleads for his eternal soul. All of a sudden, he is consumed, this man is, with spiritual truth, spiritual realities. It's as if he's heard Jesus say to his disciples in Luke 12, verse 4, when Jesus said to them, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will warn you whom you fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Brothers and sisters, where are you with this spiritual reality, the fear of God, who brings about your physical death and sends souls to hell? Do you have reverence, awe, a healthy fear of the living God? Isn't it amazing that that's exactly what was placed into this criminal's heart on the cross in an instant? Turn back in your Bible to Luke 23, 43. On April 17th of 1521, this very day, 501 years ago, Martin Luther demonstrated his fear of God. He was made to stand before Holy Roman Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms in Germany. And he was told to recant and officially, publicly retract his anti-Pope, anti-Roman Catholic teaching. The Diet of Worms ended with Charles V firmly condemning Martin Luther as a heretic, even placing a bounty on Luther's head that gave him 21 days to flee. Now, what made Charles V so angry? Martin Luther feared God more than men. Where did he get that understanding? Luther said this at the end of the Diet of Worms. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or clear reason, I am bound by the Scriptures that I've quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Martin Luther was blessed to be saved through the reading of Romans. He was teaching Romans. It caused him to come to understand the word of God. He understood salvation. He feared God from studying the righteousness of God that he saw in Romans. God's word brought Martin Luther all of the assurance of salvation that any human being could want. Right there in the word of God is your assurance. You don't need Jesus to speak to you. You don't need angels. You don't need a vision. You shouldn't be looking for hallucinations. You turn to the word of God. He knew salvation, Martin did, that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And how blessed are we that we have the same word of God, that we can read it confidently and assuredly, understand it and believe it, every single word, and the Holy Spirit helps us to do that. What did the thief on the cross know about Scripture? What did this guy know? Based on his lifestyle, not much. Where was this thief on the cross going to find assurance that Jesus is the sovereign king? The thief found assurance in the strained and splendid words of the Savior of the world hanging on the cross next to him. The Spirit of God made the thief on the cross humble and repentant. He caused him to see the injustice and mockery and evil abuse that Jesus was enduring. The Holy Spirit gave the repentant thief confidence to rebuke his fellow criminal. Better still, the Holy Spirit supplied the knowledge and the conviction that if Jesus is who he said he is, then Roman crucifixion will not be the end of Jesus' life. 
The Holy Spirit caused this criminal to understand resurrection, although he was shaky on the timing of that resurrection. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How sweet for this repentant thief to hear Jesus confidently say to him, today, today, your salvation will be made known today. Today you shall be with me in paradise. With this bold declaration, Jesus announces his quickly approaching triumph over sin and death and removes any doubt that the time frame about the time frame in which he will return to his own glory. Better still is that Jesus won't be alone going to his glory. Jesus will be pulling the repentant criminal into paradise with him. Turning your Bibles to Luke 24, verse 25. Paradise is an incredible thought. Paradise is a glorious thought. Paradise is the fullness of God's eternal dwelling place. To be in the presence of God where he dwells. On Thursday night, while Judas was betraying Jesus, Jesus was comforting the remaining 11 disciples, speaking to them about paradise, saying in John 14, verse 2, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. How do you overcome in this life? How do you persevere? What must you believe to be saved, to have eternal life? What truth will usher you into the paradise of God for all of eternity? What two eternal truths did the repentant thief believe that led to Jesus' confident assurance of this man's salvation and his entrance into his eternal home in paradise? The repentant thief believed, as we discussed, number one in your notes, Jesus is the Savior of sinners. And number two, Jesus is the Sovereign King. Treasure those truths. Friends, the same requirement exists of you today. If you are to know eternal life with Jesus Christ, you must know that he is a sovereign savior of sinners and he is a sovereign king. Blessed are those who believe these truths. Belief in crucifixion, in, in a crucified savior, belief in this, belief in that right there, that's a supernatural act. You don't believe that except the Holy Spirit put that into your heart. You must be born again to believe this message, born of the Spirit. Even then, the message is so foolish, not even Jesus' disciples were believing. At Luke 24, 44, darkness covered the land for three hours. At verse 45, the veil was torn in the temple, torn in two. At verse 46, Jesus breathed his final breath. You're in Luke 24, 25, where the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ has joined two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. His form... His bodily form is not recognizable to them as they share with him the events of the most ironic and iconic days in all of human history, Jesus' crucifixion and the resurrection on Sunday of Jesus from the tomb. They were all amazed to find Jesus' tomb was empty. Read with me what Jesus has to say to these disciples whose faith was not as bold and confident and assured as the now in paradise repentant thief. 
who was hanging on that cross? Luke records in chapter 24, verse 25, And Jesus said to them, O oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of Scripture. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the Scriptures to us? They left Emmaus and they returned, these men did, on the double to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples that the Lord Jesus Christ had visited them on the road to Emmaus. At verse 36 of chapter 24, while they were telling these things to, while they were telling them these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. Look at verse 45. With all these men gathered, with all these men gathered, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You today are witnesses of these things. This church is only here because this is truth. Because Christ rose from that grave. Are you witnesses of these things? You've been made witnesses of these things. You will be held accountable for everything that I've just said to you in the last hour when you stand before Christ because everyone will be standing before Christ. You die once and then the judgment. How can you not recognize him? How can you not recognize him? Have your minds been opened to understand the scriptures? Can you see this is the Savior? There is no other? Do you have confidence that Jesus is risen, living in paradise with his Father right now? Will you be joining Jesus and the repentant thief on the cross in paradise? Friend, are you certain? Don't leave without certainty. Luke wrote his gospel so that we may know the exact truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we too would have confidence and certainty in his salvation of us. Salvation that comes through our repentance and the forgiveness of sins provided on the cross and secured in the resurrection of our Savior. Father in heaven, thank you for this time to reflect on the glories and mystery of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ, the enigma, the conundrum, the mystery of history. What an incredible time to reflect on these truths. We serve a risen Savior. We are those who have been called to repent, drawn to believe. Father, we pray that you would use this message and our lives to draw and call many, many more because this message is so powerful, so perfect, unstoppable. And there are many who will not listen and not hear. And we pray that you grant them eyes to see and ears to hear the glorious truths 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead. We'll sing about it now. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.